Morning. How are we all doing? Uh, okay, that's about eight of you. How are we all doing? I just want to say you look marvellous this morning. Just in the word, thank you. <laughs> um, just this morning as we were worshipping, my mind was taken back to the Glastonbury event um, weekend or two ago, and I forget who it was. It was like Ed Sheeran or somebody said, "Everybody, get your your phones out and switch your torch on." And there were these single lights that came on one by one until eventually. The whole crowd was just light. And that's the kind of picture I had of us this morning as we were worshipping. We just kind of, our lights switched on until there was just this, couldn't look at it, it was awesome. So, anyway, um, I have the privilege and the daunting task this morning of introing um, the series that we're going to be uh, doing on Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. So um, there's probably a couple of places you might want to turn up in your Bibles if you're into that kind of thing. Uh, One of them is Acts 18 and 19. And uh, the other one is, well, the book of Ephesians, funnily enough. So can we have the uh, slides up? Oh, Patrick. There we go. Ephesians, camping at the gates of hell. Don't be dismayed. It sounds like a really, really negative title, but bear with me. Okay, so um, the first thing I want to say about this is um, I have a tricky task because on one hand, um, I'm going to try and give you some background stuff that's going to help us over the next couple of months as we go through Ephesians. On the other hand, I'm going to try and drop a mini sermon in as well. Okay, so we'll try and be done by quarter past. Um, First of all, you need to know that this epistle, this letter from Paul, by many, many theologians is classed as the Rolls Royce of New Testament letters, okay? Um, It's been called the crown of Pauline theology. That doesn't mean Pauline wrote it. Pauline means of Paul, okay? So this is one of the best things that Paul wrote. Uh, Somebody said this, it's the most divine composition of man, the distilled essence of Christianity, the consummate compendium of the Christian faith, full to the brim, with thoughts and doctrines sublime and momentous. So hold on to your hats. Now, um, my job this morning is to kind of set the series in context and give us the kind of overarching big story. So as all the preachers that follow me come along, you kind of got some context for that. Um, So the first thing I want to say is um, Ephesus, there it is, um, was the capital city of the Roman province of Asia Minor. And it's strategically important for the gospel. We're told twice in the letter to the Ephesians that because the word of God was preached in Ephesus, the whole region of Asia was reached with the word of God. Now, I want us to grab hold of this at the start of this morning. One city can change a region. And we've been placed where? at the east gate of the city. But I want to say something bigger than that. I I don't know if you remember the story of um, the guy who's healed at the beautiful gate in Jerusalem. When the religious leaders cotton on to what's going on, they're furious and they say this, that a notable miracle has happened is evident to all in Jerusalem. So one miracle can touch a city. And one city can touch a region. I want to tell you folks, we believe passionately in the power of God here to change and turn people's lives upside down. And I want to tell you, you cannot put limits on how far one miracle can go. I'm really serious about this. 
Like, miracles become a bit normal for us here, don't they? You know, we hear good news all the time. Oh, wow, that's great. Yes, whoa. And we forget how groundbreaking that one miracle can be for the person whose life it turned upside down. So I want to encourage you at the start of this morning, you know, as we look at this 40-year task that we've got to be a, a catalyst for the kingdom of God in this region, however far your boundaries stretch on that, I want you to know your little thing that you do wherever you are, Monday to Saturday, might just be the one thing that causes this region to suddenly wake up to the awesomeness of the king and his kingdom. Okay, so, that wasn't in the notes. Anyway, here we go. So, here's the kind of potted history. Paul preaches at Ephesus towards the end of his second little missionary journey that he does when he's sent out from Antioch. And he appoints two people, Priscilla and Aquila, to kind of keep things going when he leaves. They subsequently disciple a guy called Apollos, who becomes one of the most notable teachers at that time. And then a little bit later, Paul returns on his third missionary journey. And he spends three months teaching in the synagogue in Ephesus. He goes to those who already have the concept of God. The problem is after three months, a whole bunch of them oppose him and go, no, 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 we're not listening to this anymore. So he packs his bags and he moves down the road and sets up shop in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. That's like a public meeting space there. And for two years, he teaches about the king and the kingdom. I want to tell you, this is the very first ESSL. It's the Ephesus School of Supernatural Life. Which is a really good point to say it's the summer now. Both of our schools are pretty much shut down. Um, September, we kick off again. If you want to get a grasp on the kingdom, if you want to get a grasp on what this church is about, sign up. It's as simple as that. And if you don't know whether to do the day school or the evening school, what's the difference? Let me put it like this. It's like the difference between being baptized by sprinkling and baptized by immersion. You get wet both ways, but one gets you wetter. I've done both and I know which one I enjoyed the most. But for some people, the evening school is a great doorway in. So seriously, think about it over the summer. Okay, that's the ad out of the way. We can move on. Okay, so two years in the lecture hall of Tyrannus until eventually this kind of movement of Jesus is moving so powerfully that the local idol makers are up in arms. They literally cause this huge riot because as people are turning to Jesus, they see that their prophets are going to dive. And it's about this time that basically Paul heads off because it's prudent to actually leave the city. There's one other interaction he has um, with the city personally, and that's when he sails back round the Med again and he stops off at a place called Miletus, which is just up the road, and he calls the elders from the Ephesian church. And he basically um, fills them in on some bits and bobs before he heads off to Jerusalem, where effectively... He's arrested and he he starts his appeal process that takes him to Rome. That's the kind of um, background of it. So I want to start off by saying um, the whole time at Ephesus is best described as a kingdom collision or a, a clash of kingdoms. It's the place where we really see the kingdom of light headbutt full on the kingdom of darkness. And I just want to kind of give you a bit of a breakdown on that. Firstly, let's think about the kingdom of God. You know, Matthew 12, uh, 28, Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then the 
kingdom of God has come amongst you. So here's the simple bit of maths. Spirit of God moving equals the kingdom of God. Yeah? It's really that simple. Thank you, Martin. Should we try again? The spirit of God moving equals the kingdom of God. Fantastic. So what do we see there? Well, we see all sorts of Holy Spirit activity. We see Paul turning up and there's these kind of disciples. We're not sure really whose disciples they are because they haven't been baptized into Jesus. And he baptized them. They get, they get kind of filled with the Holy Spirit. They're speaking in tongues and prophecy. Then we hear about Paul practicing these extraordinary signs of wonders where literally people are bringing hankies and aprons to him. And then when they're taken out... They heal people and set them free from demonic power. I mean, that is pretty cool. I mean, like, my dad was the kind of guy who always had a handkerchief in his pocket. I don't carry one. I'm thinking maybe I should. But it stretches the boundaries, doesn't it, of how we think God moves. It really is. What was going on? Well, I really believe there was deposit of the Holy Spirit on those items and when those items were taken to people who needed them that deposit went kaboom so that's the the kingdom of god let's think about uh, the other end of the equation the kingdom of darkness boo in acts chapter 10 verse 38 we're told that jesus went went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil so that tells us the first thing sickness is of who the devil, yeah? So if you've got this crazy notion in your head that God sends sickness to kind of somehow toughen us up, you're wrong. <laughs> Sorry about that, but you are wrong. Because scripture clearly tells us sickness only comes from one place. So when we read that Paul goes around with his aprons and hankies and people are getting healed from their sickness, we know the kingdom of darkness is there. Not only that, we hear about people being delivered from the demonic. In fact, there's this incredible story. Um, I call it the deliverance session from hell, where seven itinerant exorcists, the seven sons of Sceva, remember them? They go and they think they will go and exorcise this guy of his demons by quoting the Jesus whom Paul knows. And they get a whooping. I'm like, this is the sozo session you don't want to be in. Yeah? Right? (laughs) They turn up thinking, right, okay, Jesus, Paul, okay, we've got all the artillery, kaboom. And they end up getting beaten and stripped naked and kicked out into the street. Not very pleasant, really. Then on top of that, we've got these sorcerers and magicians who surrender their magic scrolls and books. We're told the value of those is about 50,000 silver coins. Now, a silver coin was a day's wages. I've done the basis on an average salary today. That's about six million pounds worth of hocus-pocus stuff. I mean, this was serious business. And these are the guys who carry the secrets of the invisible world. You know, literally, magicians and astrologers swarmed along the streets of Ephesus. And Paul even writes in his, in his letter to Timothy, they're even going to wheedle their way into people's homes. And they have this brisk trade in charms and incantations and books of divination and rules for interpreting dreams. I mean, man, that's, that's pretty hot stuff, isn't it? That's like 
Really? This is going on in here? And this church is right there in the middle of it? And then on top of that, we have the, Diana, uh, the temple of Artemis, or Diana, as she's called. It was the, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was 425 feet long by 225 feet wide. It had 127 columns, each one over 60 feet high. Now this is a base column, for, this is a base plinth from one of those columns. It's at the British Museum, a place you know is dear to my heart. And it would take eight of you holding hands to get around that base column. It's huge. It's actually taller than me. And that's just the base bit of this column. This was a massive monument. In fact, I think Herodotus, who wrote about the seven wonders of the ancient world, said it was, of all of them, the greatest wonder. It's four times the size of the Parthenon in Greece. I mean, it was massive. And then we have to consider who was worshipped there. A goddess by the name of Diana or Artemis. And those who've studied comparative religion actually say she's the same as the Asiatic uh, goddess called Sibel. Um, and actually her roots are traced through Ashtart, who the Canaanites worshipped, right back to the Babylonian goddess called Ishtar, who was basically a goddess of sex and war. Okay, so um, as we see here, um, she was considered the eternal virgin. She was a fertility idol and also the god of hunting. Now, there's lots of um, kind of debate about what that is on her decolletage. Um, Some people believe it's bull's testicles. Okay, some people believe it's eggs and some people just believe it's breasts. Either way, you get the point. It's all about fertility. And that was a big thing in that world at that time. Many of the gods were fertility gods for two reasons. Firstly, you wanted fertility for your wife. And secondly, you wanted fertility for your crops. I'll unpack that a bit. We're talking thousands of years ago. There's no social services. There's no care homes. There's no old age pension. And so it worked like this. When you got married, you would have a shed load of kids. And you know what toddlers are like. They're like all the activity of a major international airport, but without the control tower. (laughs) And so the whole deal was, whilst they're causing chaos and running around in this kind of state of anarchy and peeing and pooing everywhere, you look after them. So at the other end of your life, when you are running around in a state of anarchy and peeing and pooing everywhere, they would look after you. You know the old African proverb, it takes a village to raise a child. That's because actually in many cases a village was actually an extended family. That was how the mentality worked. You also want fertility for your crops. A, because you want to eat, but B, you want surplus, because surplus equals cash. So fertility was a really big thing in that world. And so how did they celebrate Artemis or Diana? Well, you would go down to the local shrine or temple. In this case, the, the temple at Ephesus was the epicenter of that religion, that, that cult of worship. And you would sleep with one of the cultic prostitutes they had. Actually, that's a lie. You wouldn't sleep with them. That's the last thing you'd do. You'd be getting up to no good. And the idea was this goddess of fertility was meant to see this fertile act and feel benevolent towards you and then hopefully give you fertility for your wife or for your crops. The temple treasury was one of the richest in its times. Kings, cities, and individuals poured gifts in because they wanted 
benevolence. They wanted blessing from this goddess. And at the end of the story in Acts 19, we see how this idol maker, a guy called Demetrius, causes this city-wide riot when he says, look, this guy's preaching another god. And he says, gods that are made by hands aren't gods. Well, funny that. No, gods, the god, Yahweh, he makes people. It doesn't work the other way around. And what he realized was, was as people were switching allegiance, their wealth, and they were very wealthy, was at risk. And then we move on a little bit to um, where Paul swings by and he calls the Ephesian elders to meet him. And he says this, beware, savage wolves are going to come amongst you and they will not spare the flock. I want to say to you, pray for our leaders because they have a really special job. On one hand, they have the care of the church. On the other hand, they have the responsibility for spotting wolves who will relentlessly tear the flock to pieces. And that means we treat those two animals differently. Sheep you care for, wolves you shoot. I'm just being honest, you know. I know people buy huskies because they think, oh, that's really nice. But no, you know, wolves you shoot. And I've lost count of the number of times that people have come into churches and tried to do their own thing. In fact, Paul warns about these kind of guys who come and draw disciples to themselves. No, no, no. True teachers, true leaders will not say, follow me. They'll say, follow him. They're just a signpost. So actually, we do have a responsibility to treat wolves accordingly and treat sheep accordingly. There is a problem if you get those two modelled up, obviously. But, you know, the Bible gives us some clues on what each of those look like. And then finally in Timothy, this, this whole thing about doctrinal purity. Because days are coming when people will listen to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. There will be an unhealthy craving for controversy. People will have a desire to have the appearance of godliness, but actually deny its true power. And then finally, in Revelation 2, when Jesus writes that letter to the church in Ephesus, he says, I have one thing against you. You've done really well on a whole list of things, but actually you've fallen from a great height because you've forgotten your first love, Jesus. So, that... It's quite a resume. What a context for church life. What a context for church life. Now, over the years, I've always laughed when I've heard Christians say this to me. You know, what we need to do, we need to get back to being the New Testament church. I wish we could be in New Testament times. Really? Have you read any of the letters that Paul wrote? (laughs) Have you seen some of the stuff they had to deal with? Like incest and religious folk come in and saying, all you guys, you need to get circumcised. Yeah, we know you're free, but you're not quite free enough. I'm seriously, I do not want the special day out of the vet. (laughs) And so you've got this scenario where for those believers, on one hand, it must have felt like they were literally camping at the gates of hell. 
And if you follow that 40 years that the Bible charts the story of Ephesus through its conception, and we read that in Acts 18 and 19, through its encouragement in the letter to the Ephesians, through its management with 1 and 2 Timothy, and finally the audit that Jesus himself gives, they were planted in the middle of sickness and the demonic sorcery and witchcraft. They were the epicenter of that world's leading idolatrous cult. There was sexual perversion and promiscuity. There was false religion that led to mammon, the love of money. And then they're going on to risk heresy and division, rebellion and controversy, embracing form over true spiritual power. And they're going to fall from loving Jesus. I mean, who in their right mind would want to camp there? I mean, who? Well, I think probably no one, but here's the truth. We are camped there. We are camped there. You know, this letter isn't written to a church thousands of years ago that has absolutely nothing to do with the world we live in, folks. We are camped in exactly the same place. If you scratch beneath the surface of our glossy world, you know, our Waitrose... £10 for two deal and all of that kind of stuff. The truth is our NHS is buckling under the weight of sick people. It's the truth. I'm so pleased about our healing centre. I'm thinking, come on Jesus, let's make a dent in that queue. I had a friend who was very, very high up in the world of psychiatry. And um, she was Christian. And I once said to her, I said, so um, just out of interest, um, how much of what you encounter is demonic? And she said to me, do you know what? A large proportion of it is people who've made really bad choices and opened the door to the enemy. And she said, and all I can do is medicate the symptoms. That's all I'm allowed to do. You know, so let's not be in, um, you know, any confusion. Our world is full of people whose lives are being trashed by enemy activity. There are a myriad of websites offering to indulge in our voyeuristic fantasies or hook hook us up with some willing and wanton potential affair. The porn industry has actually driven most of the technological advances that we've seen over the last few years. You know, HD, that's porn. Streaming, that's porn. There's been 32,000 denominations created in the last 500 years. Most of them dividing over petty things. You know, the kind of what colour should we paint the toilets type arguments. You think I'm joking. You read the history of the church, it doesn't read well. I love um, Ford, Henry Ford. He said, we know the church must be of Jesus Christ because it couldn't have survived this long without him. (laughs) Which I just think is such a fantastic quote. Realistic but hopeful. (laughs) You know, in the last two years, one major corner of the conservative church declared that 500 million charismatics worldwide were not saved. Because they want a form of Christianity without all the power stuff. So how do we survive being camped here? How do we survive being camped at the gates of hell? Well, I think it all depends on what your paradigm of church is. Now, I know I've said this before, but I'm going to keep 
saying it because I'm hoping some of you will get this, maybe for the first time. There are three Gospels, essentially. There's a thing called the Gospel of the Church. And that works like this. World, evil, bad. Church, safe bomb shelter. What's the Gospel? Well... If you believe what we believe, dress like we dress, speak like we speak, we'll let you stay in the safe place. But if you break the code of uniformity, you buy coloured shoelaces, you're in trouble. You are out there. We're throwing you under the bus, baby. You are gone. That's the gospel of the church. And I don't think it's a gospel at all. There's nothing good about it. There's a gospel of salvation, which kind of sounds right, but actually isn't. That's the thing where, you know, you've got the Willy Wonka golden ticket. Yes, I am in, baby. And we stick it in the back pocket and we sit on our blessed assurance waiting for the first plane out of here, praying that we don't screw it up before that happens. Sounds like some of you know that one as well. And then there's the gospel of the kingdom that says through completely changing our thinking... The rule and reign of God can come and totally transform our lives. And whilst we are here, he wants to use us to bring heaven to earth, to change it. (laughs) See, in two of these views, Satan is thrown down here to give us a hard time. Bomb shelter mode, oh, he's here to give us a hard time, let's hide. Gospel of salvation mode. Oh, it's been thrown down here to give us a hard time. Can't wait to get out of here. But one of these views actually says this. Satan was thrown down so we could give him a hard time. Some of you going. (laughs) It's true. You think about it. What was Satan's desire? It was to be like God. And what happens? He gets thrown down to a planet that is going to be full of billions of people who look like God. Bummer. I mean, that has got to suck. And that is why he was so quick and so strategic in turning that around in the garden. And so in Matthew 16, 18, you know, Jesus says this, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's a really important verse. Do you know why? Because I realize gates don't move. I will build my church, says Jesus, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. Like in my old school thinking was the gates of hell were marching towards us. And we're like, oh, no, 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 gates don't move. It's actually the church that is moving and saying, Satan, we are appointed by God. We have a royal identity and a royal mandate, and we are coming for your territory. So. I want to give us some encouragement to the gates of hell. And this is where I want to dive a little bit into the text. Number one, know your enemy. Okay, if you just briefly look at Ephesians 6. You can look at 12 and 13 in there. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Paul isn't being wishy-washy and trying to give us a little fuzzy sermon here. He's being straight and honest and true and upfront. You have an enemy. You have an enemy. And I just want to say this, folks. People are never our enemy. Do you know, in 24 years plus of being a Christian, the number of times I've seen Christians make people their enemies because of something they did or said or didn't do or didn't say, people are never the enemy. The enemy's the enemy. We need to see people as what they are, brothers and sisters, their family. Some of them might have screwed up. Some of them might have listened to the wrong voices, you know, because both heaven and hell are looking for our amen. But it's the enemy who's the enemy. We have an enemy. We've got to be, but he says, therefore, put on the full armor of God. Do you know what that says to me? Everything I've given you as armor is sufficient to win. Come on, it's better than that. Everything I've given you is sufficient to win. Put it on. Put the armor on. Oh, and by the way, don't take it off. Don't do this thing. I heard this story once. Somebody every morning, I put on my armor. Here's my breastplate. Here's my belt of truth. When do you take truth off? When do you take righteousness off? When do you take faith off? You don't. You put that stuff on when you get saved, and it stays on. You don't put down the word of God. It should be informing every part of our life. So know your enemy, but here's the good thing. Therefore, put armor on. Why? Because actually you've got everything you need to be successful. Secondly, know yourself. Let's go to chapter 3, verses 8 and 10. Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Through the church, you are part of God's plan. I am part of God's plan to do what? You know those cosmic powers of this present dark age? We are the very means by which God is going to say to them, "Uh uh-uh, no way. This world is being transformed. And here's the thing. You know, Paul talks about a mystery, the mystery of the church. Here's the mystery of the church. God is using a group of people who are basically in a recovery group for a rebels to show the ultimate rebel how awesome God is come on get that right we have been changed yeah we are the recovery group for those who were once rebels and God is using people who were once rebels to show the ultimate rebel no way it's not your game you don't get the highest score on the scoreboard it's team Jesus from now on And then finally, know your power. Ephesians um, chapter 1, verse 18 to 21. 
Pray that you'd have the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe on the basis... Uh, Sorry, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above what? All rule and authority and power and dominion. There is great might and power that God has shown towards us. And it's exactly the same stuff that he used to raise Jesus from the dead and then place him over all of these demonic forces. All of these cosmic powers that think somehow earth is their territory. Do you get that? There is such encouragement in this book. And that's only three little short passages. So I want to kind of land here. And I want to talk about glory at the gates of hell. What's the key to camping there? It's glory. You know, one commentator, I said there's one word that sums up this entire letter. Glory. Chapter 1, the glory of God in redemption. Chapter 2, the glory of God in reconciliation. Chapter 3, the glory of God in the mystery of the church. Chapter 4, the glory of God in unity and growth. Chapter 5, the glory of God in imitating Christ. Chapter 6, the glory of God in the victory of Christ. Glory. That's where I want to land today. Glory. I think there's no better place. But let's not think glory is somehow separated from God. He is the father of glory. Without him there is no glory. When we talk about the glory of God, we are talking about God himself. So there's this funny story. It appears in um, 1 Samuel chapter 4. It tells us um, about a time where Eli is the, the kind of um, the prophet over the nation uh, of Israel. And how during that time there's this huge battle at a place called Aphek with the Philistines, who you know are always, ooh, they're the baddies in, in Old Testament stories. And um, the deal is Israel get totally trashed, okay? 30,000 are wiped out. Eli's own sons... His two sons are killed in that battle. And this messenger comes running to Shiloh, which is where Eli's sat waiting to hear news of how the battle turned out. It's a bit like a marathon story, yeah? And um, he turns up, there's Eli at the gate, and the messenger basically says, there's been a great defeat. No reaction. There's been heavy losses. No reaction. Two of your sons have died. No reaction. And the ark has been captured. And Eli falls off his chair and dies. A nation is defeated. Its soldiers lay slain in humiliation. The priest's sons are dead and there's not a flicker. And a small wooden box is captured and he falls off his chair in shock and dies. What's going on? We see the ark was kind of like God's Wi-Fi hotspot on planet Earth. I discovered I can get Wi-Fi in my garden this week. 
I prepared my sermon at our picnic table under the parasol with ice cold drinks. It was glorious. But you know, there's that constant search, isn't it, in our world? Where Wi-Fi? Ah, oh, there it is. Yep, got Wi-Fi. The ark was the Wi-Fi hotspot. Between those wingtips of those two gold angels on top, you've all seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, that was the earthly seat of the manifest presence, the glory of God. And when the ark went, it was like they lost God. In fact, there's a baby born at that time who's called Ichabod. Which, now the word Kabod means glory, and Ik probably means gone, or no longer with us, or alas, something like that. Can you imagine that? You go to a cocktail party. Hi, what's your name? Uh, Ichabod. Ichabod, yeah. So what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a national reminder of the fact that the glory of God has departed us. (laughs) Wow. Do you get a lunch break with that? No. (laughs) Bummer. You know, Johnny Cash sung about the boy named Sue. That's nothing compared to this. What's the point? The reason Eli died, the reason that that baby was named, is because in the Bible, the glory, the presence, the power is everything. It's everything. And Paul warns us in latter days, people are going to come who want a form of godliness without the power. I'm never going to buy into that. Because there's nothing without the glory of God. There's nothing without the presence of God. There's nothing without the power of God. You know, think about this. Adam and Eve in the garden, Genesis 3.8. The Lord walked in the garden in the cool of the day. There he was in all his glory. Jacob's ladder at Bethel. Surely the Lord is in this place. The saddest story, I really think, outside the one we're talking about, is Samson in Judges 16, where it says he didn't realize the Lord had left him. Moses in Exodus 33, God, unless your presence goes with us, I ain't going into the promised land. You can give me all the promises you want, but promise without presence, nothing. Obed-Edom, who ends up superintending the ark for a few years. He was Obed-Edom the Gittite. And some people probably thought that. What a Gittite. He, every, everything he's got is blessed by God. Now, why do you think that is? Because God was with him. And then in 1 John, we have these amazing words. We have seen. We have heard. We have touched the eternal. See, the word kabod is the Hebrew word for weight. So when we speak of God's glory, we're speaking of something in the spiritual realm that is substantial and forceful and weighty and mighty. And people in this life are trying to add weight to their lives by having bigger numbers in their bank account, by having more girlfriends, by having a better job or a nicer badge on the front of their car. And I want to tell you, none of that stuff comes even close to the weightiness, the substance, the sheer mass of having the presence of God fill your life and flow out from you wherever you go. You see, the glory was the substance of Israel. 
how else could they have escaped the clutches of Egypt? How else could they have overcome every foe as they possessed the promised land? It defined them. It gave them gravitas, his glory, his presence, his power, his spirit. So in Ephesians, when Paul says to us, be filled. We're talking about the same thing. That's how they could camp at the gates of hell. Because they had the glory of heaven living in them and flowing from them. It's about us taking on the weight, the gravitas, the substance of God. So that as he reveals his vision to us, we can truly say, nothing is impossible. There was a Catholic priest in South America who was martyred for his faith. But he wrote this book called The God Who Comes. His name is Carlo Coretto. And he said, to have found God, to have experienced his glory in the intimacy of our being, to have lived even for one hour in the fire of his trinity and the bliss of his unity clearly makes us say, now I understand you alone are enough for me. For me, the heart of that story of Ichabod is the absolute pain of knowing that God was no longer with them. And I want to recommend that as a heartbeat, that you would be more hungry for the glory of God than anything else. That we as a church, like, we've come off the starting block so well. But it's a, it's a long race, Paul says. And that gives us time to have more. And soak more. And move more. And experience more of his glory. And that's what enables us to camp at the gates of hell. And see them not prevail. And actually see planet Earth transformed one life at a time. Are you up for it? Let's pray. Come on, let's stand. So here's a really good prayer. More, please. Why don't we just do that? More, please, God. More, please, God. More of your weighty, glorious, majestic gravitas. More of your power. More of your presence, Jesus. God, we don't sit at the gates of hell and quake and withdraw in fear. We stand proud and strong because you said you have given us your glory. But we know we go from glory to glory. More of you, Jesus. More of you, Jesus. (sighs) 
more of you, Jesus. I just want to encourage you, if there's little rooms in your life that you've kind of kept his glory out of, just open the door. Because he stands and knocks. He, he, he wants total possession of you. And that's a good possession. And the reason Paul says be filled and be filled again is because there's always more of God and you can always be fuller. So we say, God, just fill us afresh. Anoint us afresh. God, help us to be the kind of people who are hungry for more.